welcome to another edition of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I'm your host, Peter. I am standing in my kitchen, watching my son. So there's going to be a lot of background noise, and bingo was his name Oh, and the like. Pay no attention. Tonight, we have a co-production with the Convalescent Flanor podcast. With Anna Troxel of Creepoid, of Lovelorn, and her new hardcore band, Mugger. I'm not sure uh, who interviewed whom in this. It kind of just happened, and it was glorious and organic and simple. And I hope you all enjoy it as much as I certainly did. So without further ado, I give to you Anna Troxel on the book. A Very, Very Bad Things podcast. Hi, y'all. Welcome to another episode of The Convalescent Flanor with your host, me, Anna Troxel. Today, I'm joined by a fellow podcaster, very exciting, Peter Tansky, who hosts the book of Very, Very Bad Things. What's up, Peter? Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This is pretty exciting. I know. It's so cool to have another podcaster on. It's like two card sharks playing poker. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, hmm. I did also, I had a podcaster on last week, my label mate, Josh, who does Spinning Out Pod. And it was funny. We both like sort of ended naturally. And he's like, he was like, so I guess that's a good place to wrap up. He's like, oh, wait, that's your job. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, no, no, it's perfect. All right, y'all. So this podcast is about recovery. So we start every episode with our guest sort of just leaping us off into what that means to them and how they define it in their life. Okay. Well, I would say that uh, how I would uh, construe recovery for me, I had gotten clean from opioid addiction in a traditional 12-step program, meaning I didn't go to NA, I attended Mm -hmm. AA meetings, Uh, the strictures of which can be uh, quite brutal as far as the rigorous honest, rigorous honesty is concerned, and as far mm-hmm. as the way you're monitored by the others in AA, as they are a lot tougher on you than they would be in the uh, normal Narcotics Anonymous uh, type setting, as far as as much as I've seen of it, anyway. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a whole lot of uh, hugs and kisses. It was it was very rigorous, very brutally honest, and mm-hmm. it was what I needed. Uh, and yeah. it's what I still hearken back to whenever there's that uh, inkling of backsliding. I, I think of, you know, these some of the more World War II veterans right. um, calling me some very, very vulgar names in order to kind of mm-hmm. keep me in check. And that's what worked right. for me. And as far as mm-hmm. uh, how that works out in my daily life, um, Part of it is a uh, uh, paternal fear <laughs> of some of them are, are no longer with us, but, you know, I, I think I, I carry those gentlemen uh, as sort of like my guardian angels, even though they were mm-hmm. pretty rough, you know Absolutely. what I mean? And having, mm-hmm, been ra- yeah. having been raised by a Vietnam veteran who was also mm-hmm. a, a drill instructor, I, that resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that I really relate to that too, because I, um, in my like path of trying to figure out how I'm going to get better. The, the first serious thing I did was to join an outpatient program for eating disorders in which I had to go once a day for like three hours and eat a, a one meal with them. 
And bless their hearts, that program just did not work for me because it was very touchy feely. It was very like, well, you're supposed to eat this, but you know, eat what you can try your best. You know what I mean? And it was like, it just wasn't right for me at the time because I needed somewhere, someone to be like, no, you fucking have to do this. You know what I mean? And like, I just was going to get away with whatever I could get away with. And if I was in a situation where it was lax like that, you know, and once I got into an inpatient program where the door locked behind me and it was like, (laughs) you know, they were like, you don't eat, you don't get to use the phone tonight. You don't eat, you don't leave the unit. You don't see the sun today. You don't eat, you don't get to go to, you know what I mean? And and like that works for me. Like, you know, like, like you're saying, maybe other programs work for other people in different ways. But for me, I needed someone to be very strict and say, there's an accountability to your actions and you can choose to keep starving yourself, but you can't do it here. You know what I mean? And that, that works for me. Like I liked having that, like that there's a consequence to this choice now in a real meaningful way and not just like in my mind, you know? And what I, f- I find very, uh, very similar to uh, the opioid addict is I had grown up with a sister with an eating disorder as well. Um, it's the same level of, of uh, guile, a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of cover stories, a lot of lying, a lot of uh, yeah. living this sort of uh, double life where, you know, you're, you're, you have these scripts almost that are kind of built in in order to skirt around you know, you're, what you're trying to get away with. And mm-hmm. are you fooling anyone? Really? No, but you certainly think you're the best uh, and, and most adept card shark on planet earth when it comes to that. Yes, absolutely. Like, I think that, you know, I was, I was working very, very, very diligently to fool everyone in my life that I didn't have an eating disorder, but I think I was working the hardest to fool myself mm-hmm. that I, I didn't have an eating disorder. You know what I mean? Like, cause I just kept being like, Oh, you're good. You're all right. And you know, there's such a comparison within addiction of all sorts where you kind of compare yourself to everyone else that you see who has a problem. Well, I'm not as bad as them. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. not that bad. You know what I mean? And th- so I think like, I just kept playing these tricks and I, it wasn't only just to fool other people into thinking I was eating. Sometimes I was trying to trick myself into thinking I was eating and I would find food that I had hid from myself. You know what I mean? Like, and I'd be like, Oh fuck. And that's like another level of the game where you're like, I thought I ate that, you know, like, (laughs) I'm like, Oh, I didn't eat that. You know what I mean? And that was like the continuation of things like that, that just became so scary and surreal. It started to get like, so like, you know, we talk about on my podcast a lot, this myth about eating disorders being about control. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people thinking like, oh yeah, you couldn't control your life. So you control how much you ate. And I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like really great on paper, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) But like, to me, I never for one second felt in control, you know, like I did, I felt completely out of control all the time. How, and how does that look on tour? I mean, I know how being uh, a substance abuser works on tour mm-hmm. because it's, you know, even in the confines of the, you know, mostly straight edge, uh, hardcore scene, there was always a mm-hmm. subset of punks who were users and abusers. And I always had, a, a group of comrades involved in the mm-hmm. same thing I was into. How does that yeah. look on tour? Because that's, you know, I guess like being uh, in a, in an independent band. Yeah. Going hungry is kind of part of it, but yeah yeah i think people are gonna catch on you know 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was, I was not actively sick when I was touring. Okay. Thank God. Um, so I was the most sick, uh, really anorexic between like 2003 and 2006. So this is the year after I graduate college up into going to grad school. Right. So this happens like well before I didn't pick up a bass until the, I was 29 years old. Uh, you know, like, so music, music came like later for me in life. And music was something that my husband encouraged me to do because he wanted a bass player. Yeah. <laughs> like he was like, oh, I want to start a band. I need a bass player. Like you can play bass. And I was like, I don't know. I'll try. But it was interesting the ways that it would come up even before we started touring, you know, just feeling like I had a physical body and being reminded about having a body by having to perform on stage and also having people take photographs of you yeah. and you can't control them. And you, you and you're like, oh, okay, that's what I look like. You know, so this is like a good deal of time after I've left the hospital, but I'm s- still coming to terms with the realities of being a human and having a body with needs. You know what I mean? And like touring, once we started touring full time, it became very clear very quickly. I have to kind of go back in time to when I was first getting out of the hospital and being very strict about setting up. I need to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I need to, there's like, it goes back to just being medicine. You know what I mean? And it's difficult to do on tour because like, you don't have access to food, like good, healthy food all the time, you know? Oh, yeah. And like my husband is in the band with me. So he's like going into like protector mode. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we need to go to all this. <laughs> 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 and everyone else in the band is like, okay. And he's like, ah, you know, and he's like, we're buying all this food so that we always have like backup, backup, backups. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, I definitely have not always behaved my best on tour, like, because it's stressful. Yeah. You know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know how it is. Like it's hard to like want to eat like a good healthy meal when like the van broke down and like your show sucked and like your gear's not working and you lost your voice or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so all the natural reasons that people go into like, I don't feel like eating mode. I know will amplify for me a thousand. You know, so it's, I'm sure the same for like drug and alcohol addiction, like, like those same stressors kick up our compulsive behavior tendencies, yeah. you know, and you, we have to watch for that. I think, especially when it comes to anything emotionally jarring, even in the slightest, because, you know, I, in my formative years, instead of learning, uh, important coping mechanisms i mm-hmm. instead learned how to raid my father's pharmacopoeia <laughs> you know? yeah like i was i was one of the fortunate slash misfortunate ones who had access to quaaludes when you know they'd already been gone for years but my father had like a cache of them yeah and i i discovered the joys of them rather quickly so yeah. <laughs> instead of dealing with uh regret, heartbreak, shame, and everything else that's built into a punk rocker in 1988, I uh, found quaaludes. Yeah. (laughs) And they worked for a while, I bet. (laughs) Very effectively. They they worked until I couldn't find anything else to replace them with that looked similar enough that he wouldn't notice because he wasn't taking them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like I learned, I definitely did not learn coping mechanisms for until post eating disorder but even before like for like for me what what fucked me up for so long was that the reason I delayed getting help amongst other 
you know, reasons about access to healthcare in this country, but what primarily was me thinking I can't have an eating disorder because I don't really fundamentally care about my body. You know what I mean? Just in the same way a drug user isn't just like, I love drugs. Like, it's just like, I grew up in a household that didn't talk about bodies or what my parents weren't like, you need to, like my mom never uttered the phrase, like, watch what you eat to me. Never made me feel like I needed to be careful about my body as if that was a standard for who I was. So I kept thinking like, cause I would look around to my other girlfriends growing up who had been that way, who had been like, oh, we have to watch what we eat. And I'd always be like, why? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in high school, I was like, dumb. You know what I mean? Like, so when I became anorexic, it was just so beguiling to me because I was like, I, there's never a thinness that's going to be enough. That's the thing I'm chasing is the feeling of perfection. Mm. You know what I mean? And like, so, you know, after many, many decades of therapy, now I'm able to realize that's what I was chasing, the feeling of perfection. And when I look back in my childhood, that's what I see always needing to be perfect needing to be like the best at everything Mm -hmm. you know academically like for my mom the best kid I don't cause trouble like you know what I mean and like that's when I'm like oh that was the high like the being so perfect you didn't have any need you didn't even have basic human needs like hunger wow yeah (laughs) I mean I think that's something that uh I don't know if I don't know if your classic cisgendered male knows that sort of pressure. I just don't think we do. Maybe some do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not something. It's not a, a standard I was ever uh, made to live up to, per se. Mm-hmm. You know, like like body image. Mm-hmm. I was always skinny, uh, right. but I didn't care. I didn't want to be like Schwarzenegger either. It just wasn't. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't a part of uh, my cultural zeitgeist. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think women are really saddled with this in a really negative, really like seething way that ingrains self-hatred. For sure. That's why I think it's kind of, uh, I think it's interesting that there were so many women I'd known throughout my life who did suffer with this very silently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you didn't hear about getting help about it. It just sort of was, it just sort of was. Yes. Yeah, that's why I think about like, ultimately, I'm grateful that I didn't have an eating disorder during the era of social media, because yes, there might have been outlets in which I've discovered voices that were saying, this is fucked up, this is wrong, like, here's my story, you know, but I think overwhelmingly, you see images of of perfect, unattainable bodies, you know, and even like just looking at last week, Kim Kardashian goes to the Met Gala in Marilyn Monroe's dress, great. Mm-hmm. She could have just said, I worked really hard on my body to fit in this dress. That would have already been a little like, okay, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But instead she takes it even further and she talks specifically about starving herself, about sitting in saunas for hours on end just to fit in a dress for a party. And I, it just blows my mind that like somebody would use their, their huge platform to spread specific tips about starvation. Yeah. You know, and and nobody bats an eye and nobody's like horrified <laughs> that you know what I mean? Like, ah, what? Yeah. Like that is insane. And like to even be in an era where people, you know, the Gen Zers love 
I don't want to hate on the youth. I really don't. But like, mm-hmm. they really want to hang up these like we're body positive and we're body inclusive. And there, there's certainly more wiggle room, but it's not like this playground of like everyone's welcome. There's still like these very specific ideas about what is beautiful and what is accepted and what is like the per the, like the perfect, you know? Right. And I just like, I just wish that there, that could be quiet for a while, (laughs) like that people could have some breath where they are allowed to like, not have to think about the ways their body communicates who they are to the world, you know, because I'm sure that the people in your life that you knew who had at the very least disordered eating were get, was getting a lot of like disordered feedback about their body, you know, because certainly in the beginning, I was getting, you look amazing. You look great. You know, like, and when I moved to New York city at the height of my illness, it was even crazier because I was in a world suddenly where I was walking down the street with models and actresses who looked like I did, Mm. who looked incredibly painfully thin. And I thought, well, I'll just, I just fit in. And I think that that that's a parallel between, you know, the music industry as well. And certainly living here in Austin, you know, Austin is like the playground USA for America for adults. It really, there's a drinking culture here that I have not experienced in my adult life. And I live in Savannah, Georgia, which where people get fucked up. Oh, yeah. In Savannah. Yeah. But I feel like yeah. here, it's almost like this badge of honor. Like we go out every night and we party every night and we're the music capital of the world. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Like, I want, you know, but I'm like, we don't need to like, live up to this standard you know where it's like always around we're always doing this it's always like the most you know what i mean yeah. i think that there's like that parallel between the two worlds of like having to participate on this high level and i think what what that is speaking to though is like yes they're doing things very large like yeah we do we do this the most we do this to the nth level but it's all toxic Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, for sure. And it like just like with Kim Kardashian squeezing into Marilyn's dress, which Marilyn was, uh, she was not a like a rail thin girl by any stretch of the imagination, right. but you know, like what she's what she's espousing is is an ingrained toxicity that is kind of a holdover from a generation that's before hers, and she's just right. kind of perpetuating it. And we're we're in we're supposed to be in this generation of you know, uh, gender bias is being completely melted away. Um, people getting to, you know, self-actualize their own sexualities, no matter what mm-hmm. that might look like, you know, and that's mm-hmm. wonderful, but there's still that kernel of toxicity. For sure. That, yeah. It just kind of comes into fruition and, and, mm-hmm. and it never, it never seems to go away. It just kind of ebbs and flows. And I'll, I'll never understand how anyone could truly champion that with any sense of, of uh you know pride you know like oh we do this we i do more coke than anybody like yeah good for you How, yeah. how's your nasal I, cavity doing yeah <laughs> i'm always like i try not to judge and like you know whatever y'all want to do but i as somebody who's been through an addiction that forced me into recovery that's forced me to really like look at and examine my behavior I feel like it's very clear to me when somebody is needing me to participate on the same level that it's really about them 
you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. You need like you need me to drink more with you because it's normalizing your behavior that's probably problematic to you, you know? And like, I always tell people who reach out to me asking like, hey, like, I'm not sure if I have an eating disorder, but I'm having X, Y, and Z behaviors. And I, I, I say like, if you've Googled, am I anorexic? You probably are anorexic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's probably a thing. And I think that echoes amongst lots of addictive behaviors because people that have a firm grasp on, I want to go on a diet and lose a couple pounds. And then that's the end of it. That's different than this, I suddenly I need to eat with chopsticks for some reason, yeah. <laughs> or you know what I mean? Like, and I'm like, yeah, I've been there, girl. Like I, you know, like anything to make it harder to eat, anything to disrupt eating, anything to get in the way of getting food in the body, like that's different than a diet, you know, but like certainly diet culture, like echoes it back and feeds it back. You know, like when I was first getting sick, I was picking up us weekly and looking for dieting tips from Lindsay Lohan. Mm. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was like, okay, yeah, eat less. Okay. You know, <laughs> those are the tips y'all. Like, that's what yeah. I learned in like 2003. It was like, don't eat as much. I was like, okay, got it. Yeah, you Ingest know? less. There, there's your, there's your move. Not like nothing to do with, uh, you know, a healthy regimen of any sort. No, of, no. of course yeah. not. Why, why would you have that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like that's what fucked me up, man. Really for real. Cause like, I did not know what a calorie was when I decided to go on a diet. I did not know how to do it. I had no frame of reference for it. You know, other than like my mom, like doing like eighties workout videos when I was a kid, you know? Oh I mean? yeah. Like, like, and then, like in the leotards and like, what was the Tony guy? You can do it. Oh you know, yeah, like, yeah. 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 <laughs> God, what is that guy's name? He had the most beautiful blonde mullet. It was exquisite. Yes, he did. <laughs> you know, so I would watch that. Then you know what I mean. There was definitely like, oh, like, oh, like women work out, but men don't, or something. You know what I mean? And like, my mom wasn't someone who dieted, but I watched my other friends' moms who would diet, and I didn't see their dads participating in that same behavior. You know what I mean? And like, my mom, my my, ugh, my aunt every time we would eat dinner with her, she would eat on like a child's plate. You know what I mean? Like everyone else had like a normal plate. And I remember seeing like, she had a small plate. I remember thinking like, what the fuck is that about? You know what I mean? Like even as a kid being like, that's weird. Right. So like, here's me, like a 21 year old adult who's never like wanted to diet or tried to diet is suddenly feeling like extreme dissatisfaction in their life is deciding to diet. Like that is a crazy choice. Like that is a crazy like leap. Like I'm feeling lonely and scared and fearful to I'm going to fix this by fixing my body, mm. you know? And I think that you're, you're right. Like that at that time, in that moment, that was a really like gendered decision. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I can be good again if I'm beautiful again, and this is how I'm going to get to feel good and safe and calm, you know, through my body. And, you know, my, my own experience with that via my, my sister, who I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say her name, I'm outing you, but I'm not going to say her name, girl. Um, yeah. You know, I think the reason why she found her way to that and then later to the same habits I had, uh, mm -hmm. because my father would, was very, very bipolar, he combat veteran, PTSD, he, alcoholic, you name it, he had it. And he used food as affection. That was his way of making up for all of the fucked up shit he'd put us through, you know, uh, 
he, he had it all going on, but he was a great cook. That was the one thing he had going. So, and, and he passed that on to me, but he used food as affection. That was his gateway into our good graces. Again, all six of us like, you know, okay, dad just wrecked the house. Now he's going to make, you know, homemade pizza or whatever he's going to make. And I think mm-hmm. that was my sister's uh, way to kind of revolt against his affection almost, which is, totally. which is kind of a, I, I don't want to say a darker uh, impetus to it, but it's definitely an, uh, an interesting one as well. I, I think there's a million reasons for people to go down those paths though. Right. Um, For sure. I think like there's, there's not one thing. There's like a gazillion reasons that we all like that it all happens at this perfect moment for whatever, for you to be in the cabinet looking for pills, you know what I mean? For your sister to be like pushing the food away as a fuck you, you can't fix this Yeah. through that. You know what I mean? And like, certainly that came up for me with like being an Italian, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And like food is love, you know, it wasn't, a, we weren't a household that cared about bodies, but we were a household that cared about food for sure. Yeah. And yeah. I had like two different dichotomy, like perspectives in my life. It was my Slovak mom's side where we don't have any money. We can't afford food. We have to eat the cheapest food possible, even though that wasn't real. That was like a myth. My mom was pretending kind of was the thing, yeah. but my yeah. dad's side, we're Italian food is plentiful. There's always enough. There's more than enough. You know what I mean? Like there's so many like diversity, like it's this, 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 this. We never have one thing for dinner when my dad cooks yeah. it's steak, it's lobster, it's sushi, it's pasta all on the same meal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so having these really like, what the fuck, you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's crazy. And like my grandmother was the youngest of 14 lived through the depression. So for her food was like all tied up in love and survival. You know what yeah. I mean? Like she was always prepared for like the next, she would have been great in COVID because her whole house was like stocked to the nines with every possible thing you can imagine. But that was fucked up as a kid, like pulling open drawers and finding boxes of macaroni that are expired, like in dust and crumbling and rotten. So it's like always finding like rotten food in my grandmother's house. And then later as an anorexic, finding rotten food that I thought I had eaten, that I had <laughs> hidden was like a weird parallel. I'm like, oh my God, I'm turning into my grandma. (laughs) But also I think even more importantly, one of the things that I've kind of uncovered, like one of the, a word you used was reward. And like, I've uncovered like that there was this sickness reward thing that happened. Like we weren't a family that like went to the store and got stuff just for no reason. You know what I mean? Like, But when we were sick, you got treated really well. And like, you got like prizes almost like you had won like some contest, you know, like when my, I remember when my brother got asthma, had an asthma attack at three years old, we went to Toys R Us and got every Batman they had on the shelf. Oh, wow. Cause that was his favorite. And like that never happened. Like we would never get like a toy for no reason. And like I, when I got bit by a dog at five, I got, every my little pony i wanted and so like i think like i figured out like oh you get attention when you're sick and that's the time when it's suddenly okay to ask for help so it's almost you know like I mean? munchausen's for sure yeah like you know only like i'm i i don't know how to tell you mom friends family boyfriend i'm not feeling good and i need help i don't know how to do that So I'm going to make myself sick because that's when you're allowed to ask for help. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I think that that there was, that was part of it amongst, like you're saying a million other reasons that was part of it. 
But like the fucked up thing was for the first time, the sickness didn't work. <laughs> like it didn't work because I lost weight and people liked it. And it was like, great job. You know, I was like, no, I'm sick. You know? <laughs> wow. What a, what a, what an, if, if let's say that were me. Okay. As, as a, a man in, in that time period, I lose all that weight. Everyone's going to converge upon me and be like, okay, listen, man, we know you're up to something. We know right, you're yeah. up to something. Uh, a, a woman does it and there's praise. For sure. Yeah. You know, you're 27 pounds underweight. You look great. I wish that there had been a little bit of not only just my, like people giving me external praise about my body. It's also medical professionals that are telling me there's nothing wrong. There's no reason to be concerned. You know what I mean? Like, that's like what really like freaks me out even to this day when I think about people that are suffering. Cause I wonder like, is there any difference now in training awareness, learning to spot the signs of eating disorders? Because I had every single one of them. I had every physical sign because not only am I losing weight, right. But I'm like growing like fur on my body. Like I'm growing fur on my cheeks, on my arms, on my legs. It's a way that your body goes, oh shit. Like you're, you're so thin that you can't regulate your body temperature anymore. We have to do this to do it. Right. My period stopped for five years. You know what I mean? Like it just stopped. And the gynecologist was like, oh, that happens. Like, you know what I mean? Like not at all concerned. There was not one iota of worry in his eyes. When I told him that he's like, you're good. He's like, that happens to young women. And I was like, okay, really seems weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, what do I know? I don't know. But the second you, you, you go beyond that, that, that magical BMI point where they consider you overweight and, and which is ridiculous. Let's face facts. Yeah. BMI is bullshit. It's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, mine's pretty bad right now, but COVID, you know, and I'm old as fuck. So I'm, I put on weight, but you know what I mean? Like the, if, if a woman goes a little bit above that, then they hit the fucking panic button. Like, Oh, you could get diabetes. Mm-hmm. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. It's, but that's when, the, that's when you hit the panic button. I think that's kind of yes. ridiculous. Right. Over is what cause for alarm severely under is fine. You know, and I was like, I don't know y'all. It's all, I don't feel good. Cause even when I was sick, I could, and I, I didn't say I have an eating disorder. I could say, I don't feel good. Like that was something again, like tied into sickness and, and allowed to not feel well physically, not being allowed to not feel well emotionally, but allowed to feel, not feel well physically. And so I would say like, I don't feel well. I have constant pain, constant pain. And the doctors were like, you're good. You probably have, they told me a pinched nerve, an ulcer. I mean, I was going to the doctor a lot when I was at my worst weight and like nobody said anything, not a nurse. Like you would think somebody in the medical professional field would have been able to say, how are you doing emotionally? Like maybe just someone could have picked up on the fact that I had lost 50 pounds in six months. You know what I mean? Like a huge amount of weight and everyone's like, you're good. You know, like it just blows my mind to this day, you know? And I I think there's just maybe a a little bit of a sea change in the medical community because now uh, certain things happen to you. You go to the doctor and they ask, are you being harmed at home? I think things are slightly changing, at least here. 
but yeah i want to know why that wasn't in place 20 years ago right it's not that long ago you know what i mean like it's really not that long (laughs) like people know what eating disorders were you know like but i think there was just a lot of like you know mythology around it and a miss misinformation and and even with someone who had an eating disorder but you know what i mean like was struggling to qualify as somebody who had one because i thought oh like i have to be doing x y and z behaviors to really qualify and the fact that i was only starving myself wasn't enough you know what i mean like i thought oh like i'm not going to the gym all day every day i'm not binging and purging i'm not doing that so that means that i'm not really sick you know, yeah. like, and so it's like, it goes to, again, the depths of deception you're even doing to yourself. Yeah. It's like, oh, I mean, I'm only using, you know, in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> I just, exactly. I, I just shoot up in the morning. Everything else is beautiful. Yeah. That bargaining with yourself, you know what I mean? Like, and even when I knew for sure, like, okay, this is problematic, but I also like, I think I got a handle on it. Like there was a period in my, my addiction that I just thought this is not great, but I think I've figured out how to eat just enough that I get through the day. I don't collapse. (laughs) I don't faint out of nowhere. Um, I'm able to like be alert and present and have conversations with people, but I'm still losing weight. So I've like found the magic formula. And I think that a lot of people I've talked to with, with alcohol or drugs, they're like, yeah, I figured out like how to like, keep a job or kind of, you know what I mean? Enough for, for long enough that I, you know, or like maintain a relationship, kind of, kind of, you know what I mean? Like, again, like all these like ish, ish, you know what I mean? But it's like in retrospect, looking back, it was not a life at all. There was no happiness. There was no pleasure. There was no joy. It was just constantly being chained to this voice that said this is what the day is going to look like well it's maintenance you know what I mean? it's actual maintenance and, and, oh, and it's a yes. horrifying maintenance because your only real relationship is the one with that which is destroying you right and you're keeping that alive you're feeding mm-hmm. that fire so that ghost that that demon that 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 saprophytic organism that's sucking the life out of you is the only thing you're showing any love or or attention everything else around you sort of melts away, disappears, and you end up becoming uh, a solitary in a way that most people wouldn't truly understand, right. which is kind of frightening. For sure. Even when you come out of it, there, if you maintained any relationships of, of any depth, they're, they're tenuous at best for a very long time because they're lined with a, a great deal of mistrust. For sure, yeah. I, I find, you know, and I... God, when I, when I'd first gotten sober, I think the first three years I had to make myself eat because when you're on opioids, mm-hmm. food's the enemy too, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because if you eat too much, you're, if, especially if you're eating pills and not shooting up, uh, that's going to cut into your high. Right. So you starve yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I'm getting oxys later. If I eat this now, I'm going to fuck my high up. So I'm not going to eat this right now. <laughs> right. And I I don't know if it qualifies as an eating disorder, but it's certainly disorderly. Right, (laughs) disordered eating for Mm -hmm. sure, you know? And and I find there's so, so many parallels, like beyond just like the the background 
yeah, there was this fear, whatever, that caused the compulsion behavior that I think parallels a lot of addictive behavior. There's real physical, like, commonalities as well in, like, avoidance of food and, or just being, like, not high on the scale of hierarchy of needs, you know, being kind of get pushing, pushed down to, like, not important. And even when I was in inpatient, the program that I got into eventually was research-based. So they were doing research on eating disorder folks, effective behavior folks and addictive behavior folks. So people that were coming out of addiction and they had us eat with the addiction people because <laughs> we were on the same meal plan. Yeah. We were on these like huge, like super high calorie meal plans. And they, were, it was funny, like they were kind of like stoked on it. And like, we were sitting there like scowling, like, <laughs> and they were like milk and like, you know, yeah. You know, like, well, especially, yeah. especially if there's any sugars, because yes, yes, you know, your, yeah. your, your pleasure receptors are looking for any goddamn thing. So sugar and caffeine, sugar and caffeine to the open, to any addict, really, it's like, Oh yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll have more. You need eight candy bars. And <laughs> me, it was sweet tarts and that screwed my teeth up in a beautiful way. Um, oh, nice. So <laughs> just chomping on sweet tarts. Sweet and <laughs> Oh, for sure. Yeah. It, it actually made me feel good to, to eat with them because at least it showed me like somebody enjoying food and feeling good around food was like nice. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and it was better than just being with the eating sort of folks that were like, it was just such a, you know what I mean? Like a misery, a misery. Mm -hmm. And like, I had always been somebody that liked and enjoyed food. So it, when I got to eat in the hospital, I felt like I was supposed to put on this act of like, this is horrible. But like, I was happy. I was relieved. I was very relieved to be eating again and to eating foods that I hadn't allowed myself to even think about in years. There's a pleasure there. Like, I don't know what other people go through, but I know what I went through was intense relief to finally be allowed to eat again. Mm. And even with my therapist, it took me a while to even admit it to him because I thought I'm supposed to be acting like this is torturous. I'm supposed to be like, I hate this. Well, like, I love it. You know, I mean? like, you know what I mean? And like, again, for me, like being in a, in a place where I had to eat, where it was structured and there was rules that made it okay. And made me feel like I could do it in the hospital. I kept thinking like, eh, am I going to do this when I leave? I'm not sure. We'll see. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there was a big, cause I was there for two and a half months. So I would say in the beginning, I was sort of like, I'll go along with this. And I'll do this while I'm here and we'll see what happens when I get out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was hard to imagine doing it on the outside when I could just do whatever I wanted. But then once I gained the weight, I was like, oh my God, can you imagine having to like go through this all over again? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the looking back and being like, I know I could do it if I wanted to, but do I want to? Cause like it took, so it took everything to get back, you know, like, yeah. and like it strained everything. It strained my relationships with people. It strained money for me. People always think like that money's not a factor with eating disorders. I can't tell you the amount of thousands of dollars of groceries that I threw out yeah. that I bought in a store, but never made it in my house. Cause I just freaked out and panic and threw it away in a dumpster. You know what I mean? Like, so there was like all kinds of shit that would like, when I think about having to do that again, it just feels so exhausting. You know, like, I'm like, That's, I don't know y'all. Wow. 
I mean, like, you know, I thought I was, I was being kind of basic when like, you know, my, my, uh, moment of clarity, uh, after, after having gotten clean, my, my, my clean clarity was like, wow, I can use the bathroom now, mm. you know, <laughs> yeah. that was the point where I was like, okay, I don't, I'm not going to go do this again. But, yeah like this is a this is a place where i just go to the bathroom yeah so wow i could just i could just i could just use the bathroom this is am- yep. this is absolutely amazing yes absolutely you know like just being able to like tolerate not like somebody asked me recently like oh like who had also had some disordered eating habits in their past so they kind of knew some of the things we go through and and they asked me when you go out to eat, what's it like when you go out to eat now? And I was like, not, you know, great. It's not like I just go in like easy, breezy, beautiful girl. Like, you know, (laughs) it's not like that, but I can just eat. I can just eat it where he knew we both knew what we were talking about, where that uncertainty, when you're anorexic, you need to know every single calorie that goes into your food. So going out to eat is torturous because you can't be in the kitchen with the chef, watching them measure out butter or olive oil or, all the extra shit that makes food taste good. Yeah. You know what I mean? That like when you're anorexic, all that shit goes away. There's none of that. It's just the thing, you know? So like eating out, I would just not eat all day just to tolerate eating out and then not eat the thing I'm supposed to be eating when I go to eat out because it's too scary. You know what I mean? Like, so it's just like this whole, like, ah, I planned this for nothing, you know? But it was interesting to, to have that conversation and be like, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, I'm like, I know what you're talking about. And no, that isn't something that's on my radar at all. I don't think about that at all, you know? Like, and even when I cook at home, I don't count calories. I don't go like, oh, and let me measure this shit out. Like, that would be a terrible idea for me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, like, you know, like that would be awful. Like, so I don't even like, even when I cook and I'm supposed to do that, like if I'm following a recipe, I just kind of eyeball it. I'm like, that's good. <laughs> Cause I know what's going to be triggering for me. You know? Yeah. It's the same way. I'm sure you do that in your life too. Just avoid things that you know are going to be problematic. Mostly with me, it's, it's uh, avoiding people and there are mm-hmm. family members. There are mm. once very close friends who will still creep up. I mean, I had a, I had someone try to get in touch with me a few weeks ago and I had to, just not answer the call. I had to just mm-hmm. pretend it didn't happen. And as horrible as that may sound, mm-hmm. this person is so intrinsically tied to the toxicity and, uh, uh, you know, obsession of mm-hmm. my own addictions that I can't, I couldn't possibly broach that, you know, I, I can't mm-hmm. talk to this person. I can't look at this person because mm-hmm. I know where he still is. Right. It doesn't sound horrible at all to me. You know, I know exactly what you're talking about. And like, I, I have somebody in my life now who is like a friend of a friend who keeps wanting to get closer to me, but I know what's happening with them eating wise. Like I can, it's like, a, you know, it's, I see you, yeah. you haven't said a word, but I know what's happening yeah. and I don't want to get involved. And I know it sounds horrible because I would love to help if I could, but I know where they are and I don't want to entangle myself in it because I know it will be triggering and problematic for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there are, there are people in my life that I could help. There are people that at different stages of their disease, I think that I could involve myself with, but this person, like you're saying, it's just too deeply entranced in their own toxic behavior and language and thoughts around it yeah. that I don't think I could be of, of help or of service right now. 
you know, and like, I do feel bad about it. Cause I'm sure you also have friends that have died oh, yeah. through this, Very many. you know, yeah. and like, I have friends that have died through anorexia and I wish that I could have helped them. And their thought, their faces come to mind when I'm like, maybe you should help this person. Cause you don't want them to die. But I also have to remind myself that like, nobody could have helped me before I was ready. Yeah. You know, like there wasn't, I just, I had to be ready, you know? Cause like I was approached by people on the street, total strangers. You need to get help. You have an eating disorder, get help. You know what I mean? And that didn't make me pick up the phone and call someone. No, that made you say, you know what? You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, you don't fucking know me, mm-hmm. you know, like you don't know shit, you know, like I had a photographer, I was working in a gallery in New York for a little while and we hung a show and it was the photographer show. And he came up to me and he said, I think I'd like to take your photograph, you know? And, you know, as a woman, you're instantly like, what? <laughs> What do you mean? You know what I mean? I was like, oh no. He's like, no, like seriously, I don't think you know what you look like. I'd like to take your photograph so that you could see what you look like. And I was like, okay, well, I'm a photographer too. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I could take my own photograph, you know? And I was pissed, so deeply fucking pissed that he had the gall to say that to me. But you know what I did? I took my photograph. Like, Six months later, not right away, but finally I was like, you know what? I am going to take my photograph and it did help me. You know, it did again, didn't change anything at the time, but it was one of the little steps that I was like, okay, that's what I look like. You know what I mean? And like, so I think you can help people in the small ways, but like you're saying, if it's going to hurt you, you have to protect yourself. Yeah. And, and that's the, one of the first things you learn in a 12 step program, you you kind of shed those that are, that are bad for you, but you're also you're also supposed to be of service so there's 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 this dichotomy you know you're kind of torn right and i'm always very torn and i've Mm -hmm. i've many years between myself and that and i still i i respect the fact that my grasp on sobriety is always tenuous Mm -hmm. i'm always at risk I'm and I'm always a junkie. I will always be a junkie. That's never going to change. It's whether I choose mm-hmm. to use that day or not. It's it, one day at a time. It is. Yeah, totally. You know, and mm-hmm. if I were to allow this person to come within these walls this day, it's it's a scary day at, mm-hmm. at, at best. And mm-hmm. I, I hit the family reset button. I have a three year old at 45 years old, you know, and I just there's no room for that in my life. Totally. Yeah. You have a toddler. I have a toddler. I do. It's great. It's amazing. Uh, When I was a father the first time around, I was not equipped to be a dad at all. Mm -hmm. I can say that with a great degree of certainty, as much as that probably makes me look like a bad person. When my daughter came in the world, I was not prepared to be a father. I was 24. My my daughter's 21, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, I wasn't equipped. I wasn't ready. I did it. Yeah. I did what I had mm-hmm. to do, but I, was I good at it? Probably not. Was I mean to her? Absolutely not. I love my daughter. Yeah. But I wasn't, I was emotionally crippled when I was that yeah. age. I really was. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what parents go through, especially in addictive, in addiction and even post-addiction, just like it's, I'm sure it's such a hugely encompassing new 
project in and of itself to have to balance like staying sober and staying well on top of that i'm sure is hard and difficult you know now not so much then yes definitely yeah then yes definitely now i mean i'm i'm <laughs> i'm old you know and that's <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not but i am and in my yeah. in my head like what does that look like uh being gainfully employed uh married three-year-old slipping back into that mm -hmm. number one i can't hide it number two i'm going to be doing mm -hmm. it around a child mm -hmm. i i already don't like that guy yes you know what yes. i mean mm -hmm. i'm like fuck that mm -hmm, guy for sure so I, yeah i'm not going to be that guy mm -hmm. yeah i think that that's one of the hardest things for me was once my husband and i started dating again you know he knew me pre-anorexia and then I went to, we started dating a little bit, but I was going to Rome for a year for school. So I was very like, don't get attached. Okay. <laughs> and he was like, I love you. I was like, mm -mm, no, be cool. You know, but the, so then I went to Rome and when I came back is when the addict, the, the anorexia started. And so I was, he was away for a little bit on tour. So when we finally got to see each other again, I was already sick. And there was no room in my life for a boyfriend by any means. Like my life was, had one clear goal was to lose weight mm -hmm. and to have a, a man around. That's not going to work. You know what I mean? So, and to see my body like that whole. So I pushed him completely away. I don't want anything to do with you. Get the fuck away from me. Like very harshly and meanly mm -hmm. because I was so scared and threat. He threatened the eating disorder. So he was a threat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the last time. That was one, the last time we spoke until we started speaking again in 2007 that was 2003 so four years go by in that time period i've gotten well i've gone to grad school i'm pretty good i'm okay i wouldn't say like on the firmest ground that i'm on now but i'm doing all right and so when we start talking again i think oh fuck i'm gonna have to like come clean to this dude about what that was all about and like apologize and like make amends basically because yeah. like i was a shitty fucking person and like i made him feel like he was the problem when i was the problem you know what i mean and also like if this person wants to have a relationship with me i have to tell them that i have an eating disorder because you have to eat with people all day every day yeah oh, that's so awful <laughs> you know so like i remember like telling having that conversation with him and him being like that makes a lot of fucking sense like you know it's like i've been confused about this for years like i thought we were cool you know what i mean you were like always so sweet and then suddenly you were just so mean you know? I'm like yeah i'm sorry i was awful i'm sorry you know and then as the fact that he didn't immediately reject me was like amazing to me because i thought i'm just damaged i'm nobody's gonna want to be with sick fucking person you know what i mean yeah. and as we got closer and closer and closer and I let him in more and more and more and revealed more and more of the, the secrets and the, the things I would do and the tricks as a way, not only to let him in, but I think as a way to protect myself, because I thought, well, if I tell him what specifically to look for, then I won't do it because you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if I tell him, here's how I used to hide food. Here's how I used to make yeah. it look like I hadn't gained, like I would wear specific clothing to, to hide my body. You know what I mean? I did this and with I my think, wife too, with, with my tricks. Yes. yes. You know what I mean? And I think it, it keeps me honest because I'm not going to go back and do those things. It's pointless to do them 
because I know that he's watching even now, 16 years later, like out of the hospital, like we'll go out to eat and I can tell he's like, you're going to eat. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then like on tour, he's like, you're going to eat. Right. I'm like, I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat. I'm going to do it. You know what I mean? And not in like a what, you know, guard dog way. It's just in like, like I'm here to keep you honest, you know, way. If you're accountable to someone else, I think that helps. Yes. I think so. One can construe that as a, a codependency. I, I don't think so because I think if you're going to be married or in any sort of long-term relationship, you're accountable anyway. Anyway. Yeah. I you think know? the marriage is different. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I am all about, and I say many times on my podcast, like you, you should get well and stay well for yourself because you can't be a good wife. If you're sick, you can't be a good bandmate. You can't like, so yeah, like there's this line where you have to be like, is this, but then I remember, like, no, I don't need Pat. I don't need my husband. I did it on my own. I yeah. did it without him. Yep. And I was yep. well for many years without him. So like, I know that's not the reason, but is he tremendously helpful? Yes, yep. of course. Tremendously helpful, you know, and just to have, cause even, even now I have to say, is this normal amount of food? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and he'll be like, I think he's very sneaky. He's always like, no more. <laughs> and like i don't know if you're um a malcolm in the middle fan yes i am but you know the episode where how like she gains weight oh and so she wants to lose weight and how she's like i don't know why i'm not losing weight and how's like secretly replacing (laughs) the like heavy cream with the low-fat milk i'm always like pat like you would fucking do this (laughs) and he's like you know, if I had to, you know, that's, that's what it's about too. You have to have somebody who's uh, rigorously, uh, you know, worried about your self care, you know, someone who's worried about whether you're okay or not. And, you know, my wife has no idea what I'm like when I'm, you know, in the throes of that, she's never seen me like that. I was clean far before she ever met me, but Mm -hmm. I let her know. I, bro- yeah. I broke it down for her when we were first dating. Like, listen, this is who I was. I'm not going to hide this because it's going to come up. And yeah. she all, she's actually not fully comfortable, I think, with the idea of rigorous honesty on my end because I don't care who I tell. Yeah, I'm a junkie. Yeah. I just, I don't care. I will tell anyone yeah. that because mm-hmm. as much as it may be embarrassing to someone who doesn't know what that world is, to me, that's not only a badge of honor, but sometimes it's like I'm throwing up a flag. like. Hey, you look like you're, you've been there too. Like, you know, you're not alone. Right. And totally. I, I, I think that's why my podcast turned out the way it did too. It wasn't my intention. I was just doing a music podcast on my wife's uh, suggestion because mm-hmm. we were hunkered down during COVID. She was yeah. sick of me puttering around the house, doing next to nothing, just playing with the baby and pajamas all day, yeah, every day. Find something to do. Yeah. You, you were a journalist. <laughs> Go do something with that. All right, mm-hmm. I guess I will. And, you know, within the first two conversations, I went from, you know, Lycia, who those Mike and Tara, they they were never in that world. But my second mm-hmm. conversation was with Toby from Softkill. And it was like, hit the ground running. Like he's yeah. from where I'm from. Right. And it snowballed from there. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't seek out people who had had, uh, issues but i think if you if you were a musician nine times out of ten something's up right something has come up for you in your life or someone you're extremely close with someone in your band you know what i mean like has this has come up 
for you for sure. And I think that the the world of the musician, the life of the musician is a fucking hard one, you know? And like this, like I saw this meme, the hard times put out the other day. It was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I asked about how much the gig pays it's just that I'm not 12. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, like that's still a fucking thing. Like in 2022 where we have to beg to get paid yeah. and where people are like, Oh, well, you know, people won't come if they have to pay. I'm like, well, I guess we don't have them come then. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, like promoters being like, oh, well, people would really prefer a free show. I'm like, well, I would prefer to get fucking paid for the work that I do, yeah. you know? And like, you know, my podcast is on Spotify, so I can't hate on Spotify that much. But like, does Spotify fucking suck? Yeah, it yes. does. Like, I'm on Spotify be, too. And yeah, they yeah. suck. They suck, y'all. It'd be great to get paid like appropriately for the work that you do. And it's it's tough because we have to balance this toxic idea about the artist, the suffering artist. And that's part of it. Yeah. And and like I'm down to like, I don't need a lot, you know, like I'm down to work hard and like, you know, like I don't expect like a bus or something yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, you know, I'm down to tour in the van. I just want to get like paid the way I would if I was just working a job like. And so I think that all those pressures just add up and add up and add up and people deal with them in different ways. And sometimes those ways are destructive. And the thing is, is like, it, it can fragment you, uh, make mm -hmm. like making, trying to make art and subsist as an adult. Mm -hmm. And I think if you make music already, there's something wrong <laughs> because, yeah. you know, like, yeah, wow. Well. <laughs> legitimately 13 years old i'm in my first hardcore band so that puts us in like 1988 89 and everyone i played in bands with a lot of them were straight edge but the fact of the matter was we all came from very very messed up homes and situations right and you know you don't just go out there and try to make noise and try to get all of this heavy emotion off of your chest without having something uh uh maybe not broken but that you need mm -hmm. you need something fulfilled mm -hmm. so i think when i interview musicians i already know going in that i'm talking to someone who has something maybe not missing but something awry something askew somewhere mm -hmm. and i I, yeah. I can say that because i'm one of them <laughs> you know yeah mm -hmm. for sure and i think like like i like i said i wasn't a musician growing up. I was really active in the music scene in Philadelphia. And I don't think there was a lot of women. I can think of like one band I knew with that had a woman in it and my like of my era of Philadelphia, like punk and hardcore. Who an albatross? I think if, <laughs> of yeah, uh, yeah, Eddie Gita did DJ my wedding. Yeah, well, Eddie, <laughs> so, Eddie yeah. Gita and I grew up together. Yeah, sick. Jay, yeah. Jay Hudock, the bass player, is yeah. my best friend in the world. Sick. Hell yeah. My best yeah. friend. Nice. That's so sick. Yeah. And Albatross actually played Creepoid's last show as well. Mm -hmm. My old band Creepoid, which was really like made us feel like, wow, this like band that we thought was like legends are like opening our show. What? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, we're like well, we're, we made it, you know, we're all massive but, yeah, Creepoid like, fans. We're all massive Creepoid fans. Just thank so you. you know. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah. So like when Creepoid started, Pat needed a bass player. So at 29 years old, I start learning how to play the bass. But I knew that world of music for sure. And I also came to it, I think, prepared for the struggles of it by being an artist of someone who, you know what I mean, has 
only ever wanted to be an artist, you know, like yeah. in kindergarten when they're like dress up like what you want to be, you know what I mean? When day I like come in with like a beret and like paintbrushes in my pocket because I want to be an artist, you know, yeah. and that's what artists look like. You know? And like I came to it understanding that world of like wanting to express yourself, like having this need to express something. And I think what made me comfortable in music and not like completely always dissatisfied was that it wasn't necessarily always like for other people like but really like about what I had to do like for me like this incessant need to explore or express something inside me that's for me you know and like it's sick when other people like it and get it but like I think that that authenticity and just doing it for like I just can't not do it Well, yeah, it's it's who you are. It's who you've been. You just found a way to finally show everyone else, this is who I've been. Right. Yeah. And like, just like, I just loved, I instantly loved performing and like performance has always been a part of my artwork. So to be able to do that with like a built-in audience that claps, (laughs) like in the art world, it was just like, very nice. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm like, shit, people clap. What? This is so, rules. It's so you know? banal just to be like, to be like inspected and, and, and like people holding up scorecards almost at that point, like seven. Yes. <laughs> different world, different world for sure. You know, I always say going to art school was like every time you walked in the cafeteria and if like a table was flipped over and there was like trash, you were like, is this someone's work? <laughs> is this <laughs> like, an installation or is this a piece? You know what I mean? Like, you know, and I brought that energy into Creepoid and just like, you know, I am not the fucking best bass player in the world, but like, I know how to perform, you know, and I think that I was valuable to my bandmates and that I was not afraid on stage, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I felt powerful on stage and, and it was all tied up into my recovery too. Like I've mentioned of, of feeling like I had a physical body again, wanting to be able to perform, wanting to be able to do the thing I know I can do and I'm good at, but knowing I have to eat to do that. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like letting it be a little bargaining there of just being like, all right, you need to eat a lot and feel good and be ready to perform. And that was useful to me, you know, and like it brought me back into my body and being seen, you know what I mean? Being, being looked at by people was something I really hated in the beginning post hospital, like early recovery. I hated to be looked at Yeah. and it performing on stage made it like something I actually liked again. Wow. That, I, I've, I've never actually put any thought into that because the, that, as far as I was concerned, I was, I was always shy my whole life. Shy, mm-hmm. terrified, like horribly shy, painfully yeah. so, except when there was uh, either bass guitar or a microphone in my hand and I was on stage mm-hmm. in front of a bunch of crazy punk kids. And then yeah. it was uh, like action, baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I am uh, Jim Morrison on, on Iggy pop on, you know, <laughs> Carl Buchner from earth crisis. Give me it all. I, I will be all of those things all at once. And, you know, especially with stark weather in the universe being my favorite band when I was a kid, a Philadelphia mm-hmm. band, like Rennie didn't even look at people. He would just and go yeah, in circles. Yeah. <laughs> like I would feed into that. Like, wow, if he could do that and he hates mm-hmm. every human being on planet earth, I love Rennie to death, but he's a misanthrope. I could, I could at least get beyond that and right. slam into people and do backflips and shit. And, right. you know, it, it, I don't know if what it fed in me. I still don't know what it feeds in me still playing music, but 
I'm, I'm a shy person until I'm Ooh. performing. Then I'm not, right. I'm not even Pete anymore. I'm some other being. I don't even know yeah. what his name is because we're not intimately familiar with one another. <laughs> right. Only shows up limited. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> limited appearances. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't even know yeah, who I, I am on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just really am thankful that my husband like saw that and believed in me. So like thoroughly, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I was like, I don't know. He's like, you can do it. <laughs> like there was like no hesitation. He was like, you can do it. You can do it. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. Like really just because he believed in it so strongly that I was like, all right, I'll, I'll give it a shot, you know? And like being in a band, is just the greatest fucking thing. Like, you know, being in a band, I, I like that. I like having the camaraderie of your brothers, your sisters, your, your people, you know, and that like going on tour, like playing is music is fun and it's cool. And it's cool when people come to your shows, but like, I love the, like, we figure shit out together now. Yeah. And like the, the thinking of a, of a pack and how my bandmates took care of me on tour and didn't ask questions when I was like, we need to drive 20 miles out of the way to go to this Whole Foods or we need to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we took care of each other. And like I learned so much about being a human being, being in a band, you know, like that had nothing to do with like playing bass or like singing, you know, yeah. like, even though my bandmates did teach me how to play bass, and to sing, you know, but beyond that, like showing up for one another and figuring things out and just like just always pushing forward you know like we never accepted defeat like we were always like all right fucking van broke down the middle of the desert no cell service still got to make the show though how are we going to get there you know (laughs) you know and i think that's what people strive for and look for uh their tribe i think that's why young men join the military i think that's why people join bands i think that's why people join sports teams you know Mm -hmm. there's that need to be a part of a unit that has uh, an achievable and single goal whatever that goal may be you could you Mm -hmm. could join a motorcycle gang it doesn't matter everybody's got that one thing they're all headed toward and i think that kind of helps put you outside of your own head enough to empathize with your comrades and i think that makes you a well maybe not if you're you know in an organized crime uh group but with the exception (laughs) thereof i mean there there's it helps you become a more empathetic and uh, a more well-rounded human being totally yeah i think i bring all of my recovery tools to being in a band and like i am a much more empathetic person than i was pre-anorexia because i do realize you really don't know what people are going through you know like and i try to remember that like people didn't know what i was going through and i was fucking pissed about it yeah you know what i mean yeah. like how can you not see you know <laughs> oh i'm actively deceiving you right okay yeah <laughs> oh, i <laughs> yeah. forgot i'm a bullshit artist yeah oh i forgot i'm a liar <laughs> <laughs> that's why but you know what i mean just like bringing all of those tools and like being patient trying to be patient and kind and to not need to build up my ego through it like this, like I try to remember, I try to keep the band in its place in my heart and like what it does for me. Like I'm not good just because I'm in a band or because the band does X, Y, and Z. Those things are sick and fun and cool, but like I need to feel good about how I treat my bandmates. That's that's the sick thing. You yeah. know what I mean? It's not like what we do. It's like how we are is the thing. 
And I think people get caught up in this shit. Like, yeah, I want to get paid appropriately. I want to like, you know what I mean? Not, but I don't need a bus. I don't need X, Y, and Z to make me feel like I've succeeded. And I think like that was a lesson I learned through being in a band for 10 years was that success can look different to, to you. It doesn't have to look the way you thought it was going to look. Oh, I'm not, I got to get on the warp tour. So, you know, yeah. like, not that that wouldn't have been sick. It would have been great. But like, just cause I didn't get that doesn't mean I wasn't successful. And I think I, I was uniquely able to go into that and learn those lessons because of all the shit I learned through recovery. You know what I mean? It made them easier lessons to learn. That's, that's an incredible way to look at it because I've, I, I, my experience, uh, by and large with a very few exception, uh, being in a band is very dysfunctional family unit, uh, especially when it's just a, a few guys that grew up together. So the, like there, yeah. there, there's going to be a lot of raw nerve going on. Sure, and, yeah. uh, I think the only time where it went off completely without a hitch is when Jay Hudak from an Albatross mm -hmm. and I and our late best friend Hans, we had a band together and we didn't even write music per se we just kind of went out and did very doom laden brutal uh kind of like stream of consciousness music and we, mm -hmm. we did this for a while and we would play everywhere doing it uh that was the only time i think where we were all of one mind and and of mm -hmm. one spirit and the other time i find myself at cross purposes with people and, yeah. and I, I i think that's i think that's because men are competitive but you know my experiences with being in bands has always been a little tenuous <laughs> yeah I feel that you know I, I definitely feel like super lucky and fortunate that like my bandmates were my people you know and like they like we fought all the time. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like physically fought all the time. Yeah. Like people would always be like, oh shit, great boy, are y'all gonna break up? We'd be like, why? Like your drummer just punched your guitarist in the face. Yeah. They're like, oh no, that just happens. <laughs> <laughs> like we we were very, but you know, we were very like, if we were upset, we told each other right away. There was no bullshit. There was no like, you know what I mean? Like it was like, oh, are you mad at me? Why? <laughs> okay, now I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I think that, that they like, they didn't even like my bandmates didn't always know. I, I think people that listen to my podcast know more about my eating disorder than my bandmates. It's not like we've spent hours and hours talking about it, but when I said to them, I need this, they believe me, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And when I said, I, I need to, I can't do that. Like what certain things would come up that I couldn't do, you know what I mean? And like yeah. it happened by sometimes there were things they couldn't do because it didn't work you know and i had to let that go and trust them too if they were telling me it's a hard no it's a hard no yeah you know what i mean and, and i think like respecting that boundary having, is 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 like kith and kin to a you know a healthy friendship absolutely yep yep so let me ask you this because i you know on my podcast the first thing i always ask everyone and i kind of have an idea of what yours would be but what is it that existentially terrifies you on, on the deepest level of your being? Because I find that, you know, once you know that about someone, you kind of know what makes them tick. Like now, like, 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 like now. yeah, like right now in life, what, what is in life, like at this time in my life, yeah. the scariest thing I could imagine. Yeah. Oh, what a toughie. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the scariest thing I could imagine would be my, like, having my ability to express myself be taken away 
you know, like having to not be able to have an outlet in which I could write, read, make art, make photographs, make music with my friends. Like that would be the scariest thing Mm -hmm. I could imagine because I can't imagine living, like I have made specific choices in my life to allow that to happen every day. You know what I mean? Sometimes I get down on myself. Like I don't fucking own a house. I'm going to be 40 this year. I don't own shit. I don't have anything to show for my life. But then I remember like the records that I've made and the artwork I've made and the shit that, that is very important to me to express myself. And I know that I've made all those choices to enable that to happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I think like, it would be unbearable if I couldn't do that. Right. You know, I think that, I think that that's kind of a common thread. I've, I've heard variations of that many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, losing the ability to see, hear, think, you know, yes. it all, it all kind of falls in line. That's how I see, hear and think, you know, Yeah, exactly. This is, this is how yeah. I breathe, you know, making yes. this music, making this artwork. Um, you know, at least it's not as obtuse as, as the way my mind works. You're so fortunate in that. Man. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> oh boy. I, I've, uh, I've, I've uh, talked about this on, on my podcast before, but you know, I've had the same existential dread since I mm-hmm. was probably five or six years old. And it's something that makes no sense to most people, but I would always uh, ruminate on the idea that outside of the known universe, when all of the stars have been surpassed, there is nothing. There's no, there's nothing. And that doesn't bother me that, you know, well, <laughs> let, let me, let me tell you something. I've white knuckled through many panic attacks yeah. thinking about that from age yeah. five or six until yeah. like three nights ago. Yeah, I get in. I get into this loop, and it's like, okay, no, no, no. There's going to be nothing. You're gonna, you're gonna run into the void. There's going to be nothing. There's going to be nothing. I start. My heart starts going. I like. I start hearing my heart beat in my ears, and I clamp down, and then the panic attack ensues. And yeah, and, and that kind of like that can happen when I'm driving. I don't like out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. I don't, yeah. I don't know why I even think of it. I don't know why that would worry me. I'm never going to know mm-hmm. that. I'll never know that. Yeah. I have no need to have that information. What's what's out there? Who cares? Right. <laughs> yeah, who cares? But we're alive right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it just, it's something that uh, I return to uh, when I allow my thoughts to, you know, kind of drift. There's something about the idea that there is a vacuum. There's a nothingness that just frightens me to no end. (laughs) And you said that's something that's been going on since I was like like four or five. Yes. Yeah. Did you ever talk to people about that? Like as a, as a kid? Yeah. What was that reaction? Uh, Mostly like, fuck, why would you, why why is that even a worry? What, what, what's got you thinking about that? And and it was my, uh, there was a, television show on public television when i was a child called nova and it was all about mm. the universe and all yeah, of that. okay i remember that and i would just fixate on this and eventually it got down to you know the big bang theory and the way the universe expanded but eventually there's just a vacuum of black nothing mm-hmm. and that was it that just mm-hmm. triggered something in me that existentially never went away 
Right. And that became intolerable. That be, that, that be, the vacuum became intolerable, like mm -hmm. absolute, like oblivion became an intolerable thought to me. So mm -hmm. I've been trying to make sense of it since I was a little kid and I never will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I used to worry a lot as a kid too, about like senseless things. Like I would worry, like the house is going to burn down. We're not going to have a place to sleep or, you know, when you were a kid and you would get those things in the mail that were like kids faces yeah. and be like, have you seen them? Yeah. I would worry about them. Me I'd be too. like, where are they? I, and I would like look for them. You know what I mean? Like there was, there was an old man that lived in a, in a really rundown house by my bus stop when I was a kid. And every time I would see him, I would cry because oh. I knew his wife was dead. I knew he lived alone and it fucked me up. Oh, did that yeah. fuck me up? I didn't know much about him. My dad did. My dad used to drink with him in the bar every other night. I didn't know that. I didn't realize he had friends, but I just saw a lonely old man walking with three groceries in a bag every day into his, this red rundown brick home. Oh my God. Like the, like this is, I'm a ruminator. Apparently I, that's. Yes, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but I would, I think see, like, see this shit. It, it fucked me up. It speaks to like, um, you know, I'm not, I think we're like, are you a millennial? Uh, no, I'm a, I'm Gen X. Gen X. So we're close though. Cause I'm like a cusper. Cause yeah. I was born in 82. Yeah. So like, there's this, there's definitely like this, I think like, so what? why are you upset about that kind of situation like vibe that I would get as a kid too. Yeah. And like, I remember one time not being able to sleep and like creeping down the stairs and my mom's watching like 2020 or something. And this guy had a schizophrenia and he taped, like he simulated the voices that he heard on like a cassette tape and like they played it and that like fucked me up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I was like, Sarah, like very scary as a kid. I was like eight or something. And I said to my mom, is that going to happen to me? Like, am I going to get schizophrenia? And bless her heart, you know, my mom's like in her late twenties, probably, you know, she's a kid too, kind of, you know, yeah. well, way younger than I am at this point with a kid who's like thoughtful and inquisitive and asking this deep, dark question. And she's like, well, I don't know. I can't say one way or the other if that's going to happen. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she was like, I don't know. I don't know if that'll help. You know what I mean? Like, and I just thought, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she was truthful. Lucky she told you. the truth. But if you, if you, if you process that and you were okay with that, lucky you, because when I was same age, about five, six, somewhere in there, uh, I grew up going into the woods with my father because we're fucking hillbillies and where my family's cabin was, there were lots of cows. Uh, they were beef cows, cattle, but the guy who owned them didn't really slaughter them. And they were all behind their uh, barbed wire fence. And I looked at my father and I'm not making this up because he'd recounted this to me millions of times. I said, dad, what if to them were the ones who were fenced in? I was, I was like four or five and he looked, yeah. he looked at me and he said, he's like, never say that again. No, he looked at me and he said, you're probably fucking right. And he picked, <laughs> and he picked me up and he kissed me. <laughs> so I think what that comes down where he could have just said, you know what? Don't ever, don't think that yeah. because they're, yeah, they're fenced in. That. This is your place. That's their place. Instead. He was like, he, he fostered, I guess this, this, uh, you know, ability to meander and, and mm -hmm. to go deeper than I, maybe I should, but 
God bless them for that because it, it, I made me a creative. Yeah. And like my mom always admits very, like, she's like, you were my oldest. I made all my mistakes on you. <laughs> me too. I'm the oldest. She's like, yeah. She's like, should I have told you as an eight-year-old that you might, you could, she couldn't say one way or the other, if I would get schizophrenia. She's like, no, I wouldn't have done that to Mikey, who was my, my her youngest, yeah. who was born 14 years after me. Yeah. Right. So she learned a lot in that time period where she'd be like, no, that's not going to happen to you. What are you crazy? (laughs) Like, but for me, she was like, well, I don't know one way. And I just, I, you know, I appreciate the very blunt, direct honesty. Like, but you know, like as a kid, I remember thinking like mom isn't somebody I go to for comfort. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that she did that to protect me. She was a teacher her whole career. She taught for 30 plus years, you know? So I think that her experience with parents that would helicopter and like overprotect and, and their kid could do no wrong. She didn't want to do that. She wanted me to, to be independent and stand on my own. And, and that's great. That's a great impulse. But I think she took it so far that I thought I, I'm, I can't express worry around my mom because she doesn't seem to like it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, she's like, it's okay to think about that, but I don't think that's going to happen to you or whatever. It was just like, I don't know what you want from me. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I'd be like, okay, so where does the worry go? You know what I mean? Cause I'm still going to worry, but now yeah. I don't feel super great about talking to my parents about it. It feels wrong somehow. You know what I mean? And like my parents, again, were kids like, you know, like you, they were kids when they had us. So like they would fuck with us. Like we were chilled, like we were all the same age sometimes. I think like, you know, my brother would get so nervous on car driving in the car and he'd say, are we lost? Are we lost dad? Are we lost? And my dad would go, we're lost. I don't know where we are. You know what I mean? They would like fuck with us. And I think, you know, they're just 20 year olds trying to have fun with their kids. And we're like, you know, <laughs> like, and I think like, it just, you know what I mean? It just made it seem like, don't worry, don't bring it up. They don't like that. They don't want you to feel that way. You know what I mean? Like, so where does it go? It goes inside. Yeah. Like the worrying never stops, but it just builds up and builds up, and builds up. And I think that finally erupted into like, I worry, I'm worried about what life's going to look like as an adult. And I don't know what it's going to look like you know what I mean? And that, yeah. that was how it all, like, I couldn't say to my mom, I'm worried about what life's going to be like after college. What's that going to look like? You know what I mean? Like, cause I've always been like relying on this academic world to feel like that's the next step. The next step is this, 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 you know, and now I don't have that. And I want to be an artist. I want to be an artist. But I don't know how I'm going to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I, there were no other artists in my family that I could look at and be like, okay, they're, they're all surviving. You know what I mean? Everyone had jobs, like, like stable, normal jobs. Like, so I didn't know like what's going to happen to me. And I didn't know how to deal with it. You know, like, so that's how that, like, that ended up like, yeah. for better or worse with me, you know? And like, it would have been cool if someone had just been like, it's cool to talk about that shit. Like it's all good. You know, <laughs> that was, uh, I guess that's the one thing I had going for me that, that my parents, <laughs> the were... one thing I'm sure you have more than one. <laughs> well, well, I mean, well, the one. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to piss all over my dad's grave, but he was, a, he was right. a very dysfunctional person, Yeah, but he, he was a free thinker at the very least and a musician. Right. So I, 
that with him, but he was also very rigorous with. I don't want to say he was homophobic, but he was very homophobic Mm -hmm. and he was convinced. Yeah, he was convinced I was a homosexual when I was very young. So he did his damnedest to straighten me out. Mm -hmm. So my next youngest sibling, my brother, Gavin, who is a gay man, uh, Mm -hmm. was kind of like my father's comeuppance. And it taught him a lot about about being a father, because, you know, like when someone's really like, I I think people are born gay. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. But my brother was, it was obvious when he was five, he was four, Mm -hmm. that he, he was a gay man. And I, I was, I was his protector. I'm the oldest. And I would fight with my father quite a bit about him. And eventually, as my brother got older and my father got older, that was his comeuppance. That's when he realized, okay, this doesn't really, really matter. Right. <laughs> this isn't really a thing that anyone right, should be right. worried about. That I need to be, yeah, concerned about. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, my mom always says that. Like, we learn it as we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we learn it as we go. And I, I've, that's why I have a lot of empathy and and it's never like a blame, like parents fucked me up. You know, they were doing their best. Like yeah. they did fuck me up, but they didn't mean to, you know what I mean? And like, I fucked myself up because I took it and ran with it as well. You know what I mean? And like, so there's like, like we're bringing it to back. There's like a million reasons why we come out the way we do and why we choose to, to go down these paths of destructive behaviors. Yeah. And we can't disown like, yeah, like you were part of that. Yeah. Like it wasn't not it like that was I wasn't not part of it but it's also like a million other fucking things and I think like whatever there's like this human need to understand yeah on the hierarchy of needs right that that's something we need to understand but with addict addiction sometimes I think that fucks us up because there is this I want to know why I need to know why why me why did I start starving myself and yeah, I've spent like years and years and years in therapy finding all these little tidbits like, oh, this was part of it. This was part of it. But like, ultimately, it doesn't fucking matter if I know why or not. No. I just need to not starve myself. You just need yeah. to know how to not do it. Right. That, like, Give me the tools to not do it. it it's just like being schizophrenic. It's just mm-hmm. like having chronic, uh, you know, depression or cyclical depression or, or, or whatever your psychological malady is. All of us have psychological maladies. Mm-hmm. All of us have problems. And my head full of bad wiring happens to include a predilection toward addiction. Mm-hmm. Thusly, I need to curtail any behaviors that would feed that addiction. Mm-hmm. Does it, some of it come from my parents? Yes. Does some of it come from genetics? Yes. I don't really need to know why anymore. That's, that's so low on, on my list of needs. I just right. need to know how to not fall yeah. into my own trap. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I'll set it every time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> good at it. Yeah. <laughs> Take your arm in the Oh no, that burns. Don't do that again. Oh wait, I'm going to do that again. Yeah. Oh, it burns. I'm going to do it again. Oh shit. There <laughs> That's what it yeah, comes down to, really. For sure. And I think like for me, there was this badge of honor about being able to tolerate it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and that's a very Philly thing of like, you know, being able to handle misery mm. and that, that being something we're proud of. 
think is like fucked up, you know? That's, I'm like, no, actually, I don't need that to feed my ego. Like how much shit I can take and still function. That's in, you know? that's not just Philly. That's I think that's intrinsically Pennsylvanian because I believe it. Yeah. We are all <laughs> gluttons for our own self-punishment. Absolutely. That's why yeah. the area that Ed Gita and Jay Hudak and I grew up in, there's a bar on every block and a church on every block, but that's about it. You know, right. That's all. Yeah. That's what you need. You can go and, and destroy yourself and then go and beg for forgiveness and then start over on Monday. Yep. And I, I outdrank you. I drank you under the table. Oh yeah. I did more dope than you last night. Oh, oh yeah. You passed out, but I got back up and I did a line of Coke and then we were good again. And there's how that can possibly uh, be construed as a badge of honor is completely beyond me, but I was a part of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it made sense at the time. Sure. Sure. You no, know, at the time it, it made sense. It, it, it made life easier to tolerate especially when you're considering the fact that i'm worried about being in uh you know oblivion the nothing the nothing (laughs) well i feel like that's a good place to stop i like to end on a happy note (laughs) (laughs) the happy note is we're all better now yeah (laughs) yeah i always tell you know like I've, I've recently written, well, not recently, I've recently finished writing a memoir about my eating disorder. And um, it comes up a lot as a point of contention with my husband, who, who I really want to read it. And he's reluctant to read it because he makes an analogy of like, would you want to go watch me get beat up? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to read about your worst time, you know? But I'm always like, but you know, the end, the end great. It all worked out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it's a happy ending. The ending was I got better and like I figured out a way to stay well for 16 years now, you know, and like I, I like you're saying every day, it's it's an everyday choice, but I feel good. I feel like I found my way out of that darkness. And like I even though I know it could go back at any time, I also know that I think about it as the past. You know, and I don't think about it as who I am now because I make it so important to make choices every day that keep me well. Yeah. yeah. And I feel the same exact way. Yes. It's just, yeah. I know people don't like me talking. Some people don't like me talking about it, but this is how I got here. And uh, had I not gone through it, maybe I'd be not as good of a father. I don't know. For sure. Yeah. Have you seen the meme where it's like the kid at the party? And he's like, nobody knows I'm a this. Yeah. And that's like the meme. So I always think it's like, nobody knows I'm a recovered anorexic. And then someone else at the party is like, yeah, we all do know. You talk about it nonstop. (laughs) 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 Bitch, you never shut up about it. I'm like, yes, I did. (laughs) Well, Peter, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is great. Absolutely. It was really, really great. I can't wait to share this with the world. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's it, folks. That was Anna Troxel and myself on a co-production of the Convalescent Flanor and the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I just want everyone to know out there that, um, you know, if you do have some sort of problem, uh, no matter what that problem may look like, no matter what it is you're going through at this point in time, You're not alone. 
There are people just like you going through exactly the same thing. And I know what we talked about on here uh, may sound, you know, a little altruistic because it's in retrospect and we're on the other side of things. But um, I believe we're both cognizant of the fact that there are people who are in it right now who haven't come to terms with it yet, who, ha uh, you know, just don't want to uh, face up to it. When you're ready, I'm not trying to force anyone here, but when you are ready, it's not hopeless. And there is life on the other side. So I need to get back to my son because I'm still standing in my kitchen. I'm still watching him. It's still, uh, <laughs> still daddy time. I'm just kind of stealing a few minutes here. So, um, from all of us at 3.33 a.m. Studios, from Convalescent Flanor Podcast, she's Banana, I've been Peter, you've been beautiful. Good night, everybody. <laughs>